Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you. My name is Spencer. As Darwin said, I work here. I lead our student ministry, and I am very excited and very honored to be here speaking this morning. I feel like God really has a word for us, uh, and I'm excited to be a part of that. When I was 10 and I was in fourth grade, I had a really unpleasant experience one time. I was a mere 20, 22 minutes into my five-minute fourth grade book report in class, and after multiple warnings, my teacher, Mr. Olson, very rudely just stopped the camera, pointed at me, and said, Spencer, you need to get to the point. As you can tell, I was a bit of an oversharer as a child, and I was very excited about what I was talking about, but I don't want to make that same mistake this morning. I feel like there's so much to get through. So if that's all right with you, I'd like to just jump right in, and let's start first with prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to hear from your word, to worship you, and to gather as a community that's centered around who you are. Father, I just pray in this time that your words supersede mine. Would this all point to you, Jesus? And Lord, would this edify and challenge your church to live as she was intended to? I pray this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So, Jesus sometimes likes to get to the point as well, and, and in this passage, I feel like he does that uh, same thing. So when we look at, at John chapter 17, right in the beginning, he says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus makes it real easy here in this passage for him, right? What's eternal life? To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I almost felt like saying amen and just going and taking a seat, right? Like, what else do we need, okay? But the, the point this morning, as Jesus gets us into this passage and this prayer, is that without Jesus in the beginning, in the middle of the end of everything we do, what we do here has no meaning and no purpose and doesn't carry anything besides having us sit in a room together and talk about religious things. Without Jesus, this, this gathering is us just playing church and enjoying some music and enjoying time together. And that doesn't really mean a whole lot. But with him, with Jesus, if this community can be centered around Jesus, which is why we're here and why we're preaching this morning, we are so much more than that. The book of 1 Peter tells us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When we say here that our number one value at South Suburban is Jesus, we're not just saying that because it's cute or because we feel like we should because we're a church. We honestly believe that when it comes to life, the beginning, the end, and the middle of all things is Jesus Christ and his message of redemption. Jesus is the name above every name at which one day every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord, and that is what we are about here. We're a community that exists to propel the name of Jesus into a world that desperately needs him. If you agree, would you give an amen this morning? I like it. Okay, now, when I was studying this passage, as you heard it read, there's a lot going on in this prayer, this high priestly prayer as it's called in John 17. And at first I read it and read it and said, what am I going to talk about? 
There's so many ideas. There's so many different things. I felt like it was going to be very artificial to draw things together. But as I paid more and more attention, I noticed that a lot of themes kept popping up. And one theme in particular I feel like comes through this entire prayer is the idea of being sent. In verse 3, we see Jesus say it. He says, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In verse 8, he says, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And then in verse 18, where we'll camp a lot today, he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them, meaning us, into the world. What's unusual about this is that the context of this prayer is that these are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Right? This is the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse. This is the end of the night. Jesus is praying for his disciples as he gets ready to go. And one would expect it to be maybe tailored more towards comfort, maybe towards encouragement, maybe towards their feelings, their relationships, what they're going to do without him. But what's interesting in this prayer is that some of those elements are there, but all of them are superseded by the theme that there is a mission. Jesus is very concerned with his mission in this prayer. And he talks about what we are going to need as his disciples in order to be successful in light of what I believe is one of the most daunting assignments ever given to humanity, which is verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, while we might, might, may like to look at the cross as the work of Christ, the thing that Jesus did while on earth, and yes, that is probably the centerpiece What's interesting is in verse 4, Jesus talks about, I have finished the work that you sent me to do, but he hasn't yet gone to Calvary. So what could that possibly mean? What is he talking about? Well, if the only work that Jesus did was forgive sins, which I feel like saying only is kind of ridiculous there, right? But uh, if that's what his work was, then that's something that we cannot possibly emulate. None of us is perfect. None of us has been given that assignment. But if Jesus' life was also to point people to the Father, if you're taking notes this morning, that's in your first bullet point. If Jesus' life and mission was to point people to the Father, then that's something that we also are able to walk after him in. And here's where I feel like it's really important for us to understand who Jesus really was, which is the theme of this entire series, Who Am I? Because if Jesus was just a deity, just a God figure posing as a human, looking like a human, but not really human, right? If he's playing cheat codes for the game of life because he can do things we can't do because he's not really one of us, then, then it's not a fair comparison. It's apples and oranges. There's no way we could ever do anything that Jesus did. But if the scriptures are true, that Jesus really, truly was a human, that he was a man, he was God made flesh, as John says in his introduction, if he was truly dependent on the Father, like it says all throughout this prayer, you gave me, you sent me, everything I have comes from you. And if he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything fruitful in his ministry, well, I think it's totally fair for us to be asked to walk in that same spirit, in that same mission. Romans eight eleven says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, that same spirit will give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In you. This morning, my point is this is that Jesus' mission while on earth before the cross was to point people to a relationship with the Father through Him. And in verse 18, He makes the outrageous claim that we're to follow in His footsteps, right? He says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. 
His concern all throughout this prayer is not their comfort, their security, their happiness, their relationships. He's not praying that they would be saved. He's not praying they'd be taken out of harm's way or that they'd learn more about him. His concern is that they would accomplish their mission, our mission. Dr. Craig Blomberg, who teaches at the seminary, lives in the area, wrote in his commentary about this prayer. He says, as Jesus prays for his followers who will spread his message, he is clearly demonstrating concern for the lost. As a church, you and I have an identity that's not only wrapped up in the work of Jesus on the cross to give us unmerited favor and acceptance with God. It's also wrapped up in our calling to make the Father known through Jesus Christ because we are a community that is sent. This morning, please do not miss that being sent is not just a good idea. That is our identity as the church, if you're taking notes this morning. We are a community that is sent to proclaim the name of Jesus and spread the news of God's love to the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Your relationship with Jesus, your personal faith journey, while good, is not an end in itself, but it's a means to furthering the mission of God that we have been invited into. And I wonder if, if this morning if we're willing to agree as a church that everything about us, our relationships, our gatherings, our worship, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money serves a purpose. And that that purpose is to make Jesus known to a world that desperately needs him. The bottom line is that we are, if we are not spreading the name of Christ by the way we live, the way we gather, the way we spend our money and our time, we're not just leaving a good idea undone. We are betraying our fundamental calling as the church because it is not just an idea. It's our identity. And accepting that identity is a lot more about where our hearts are than about where we are geographically in the world. Because you do not need to be a career missionary and get on a plane and go to a far off land to be on mission for Jesus, to make him known. And it's a, the, those of us who do that, it's an amazing sacrifice and they do something that most of us can't do. But God chose certain ones of us to be in this place. You and I are here, we're not somewhere else. And there are people here who need to hear the message of the gospel. And God put us in this church in Littleton in 2016 as his vehicle, as his plan, which is crazy for us to spread that message and to spread that news. The question is, are we willing to answer that call? Because God doesn't need us. God's gonna do what he's gonna do, but he does invite us into that mission. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So as we start wrapping up this morning about what that means, I feel like there's a really serious question that we need to be asked, uh, and that question is this. Is it gonna be Robbie, or is it gonna be Jordan? Okay, I don't know how many of you are familiar with The Bachelorette. Um, I'm married, so I'm more familiar than I'd like to be. <laughs> Um, and that's just a joke. Um, the real question, uh, and I don't know who I should be, but the real question this morning is how. Uh, the real question is, so what? Yes, we've been called. Yes, that's our identity. We are called to spread the name of Christ, but how? That's a great idea, but how? Well, the nice thing is that Jesus actually helps us out. In this prayer, he gives us some very clear examples of what it means to live out this mission. So we're gonna start in verse 14 through 16. He says this. He says, I have given them, talking about us, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world 
any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Excuse me. I love how Jesus says, I specifically pray not (laughs) that you take them out of the world, right? I think he knew the people around him, (coughs) excuse me, in this prayer circle, where their hearts are, right? Because they know, hey, we're on the inner circle with the Messiah, We get a free pass on life. We're going to be in the VIP line for the rest of our days. And Jesus knows this, and he says, Lord, I specifically pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. But what we see in the ending section of this prayer is that Jesus makes a couple of references to both being not of the world, verses 14 and 16 say that, and then in verse 18, being sent into the world. So if you've been around church or church people much of your life, you may have heard the phrase being in the world but not of it. And this part in John is exactly where that phrase comes from. But what does that mean? That's a nice little tagline, but what in the world does that mean? Well, I want us to end by looking at this idea a little bit more closely for a few reasons. The first reason is that if you've been paying attention, we think Jesus is a big deal around here. And this is what Jesus had to say about his mission. So we feel like it's worth looking at. But secondly, we believe that uh, if we don't understand what this idea means, it's going to be pretty difficult for us to actually do it well. So to start, what does it mean to be in the world? First, I think it means that you and I need to be sacrificially engaged in the world around us. If we have any hope of influencing people for Jesus, we need to know people who don't know him. And I know as I say that, a lot of you in your mind say, yep, mental checklist, I know a few people who aren't Christians, I'm good. And I feel like that's good, right? 99% of us are there. But I want to push us a little harder today to say, how well do you know that person, whoever's in your mind? Maybe you know them, but are you actively engaged in their life? Are you even possibly sacrificially engaged in their life? Would they call you if they had a tragic event happen? Could you call them and ask for a favor? How engaged are you in their life? Because the bottom line is that If we're not, why in the world would they care what we have to say or what we think? But if we're engaged, we gain an audience, we gain the right for someone to hear what we have to say about Jesus, which is our mission. This also requires us the discipline of getting to know and being engaged in people who aren't like us, which I don't like very much, but that's just what we're called to, right? Whether they're from a different part of town or a different country, or even a different generation, if there are people in our community, even our church community, that you and I have no idea how to relate to, chances are pretty slim that we're going to be a major influence in their lives for the gospel. How many of us in here, by show of hands, have have felt like their lives have been deeply changed by someone from the Amish community? Okay, we've got one. We had one last service, too. Oh, we got two. Hey, I'm impressed. That's really unusual, but that's really cool. Um, The reason I ask that is nothing against Amish folks, but just to say, because of who they are, just as an example, they're not only very geographically distant from us, but they're also very culturally distant from us. There's nothing against them, but for the most part, they've lost the ability to speak to us, most of us, in a meaningful way. And if I can be completely honest, one of the passions in my life and one of the things that absolutely breaks my heart is when the local church is guilty of getting that same distance from the culture around us so that we lose the ability to speak in a meaningful way to people who need to hear about Jesus. 
Our message is far too valuable for us to lose the ability to speak in a way that it can be heard by those who need it most. We need to love these people enough to be willing to speak their language. So whether we're scattered in our homes and at work or whether we're gathered together as a community at church, we need to be sacrificially engaged in the world around us so that we have an opportunity for our message to be heard. The second way we can be in the world is to have genuine affection for the world around us, if you're taking notes this morning. And I'm not talking about affections as far as lovey feelings or celebrity crushes or anything like that. I'm talking about sharing God's heart for the world around us in all of its forms, whether it's people at your workplace, whether it's music that your kids or grandkids listen to, whether it's our local, state, national governments that make our lives happen, whether it's your favorite park or trail or river, God, God cares about all of those things. And some of us, because we recognize the difference and it's getting bigger between the world as it is and the world as it should be, we start to slowly pull back from things that make us uncomfortable or things we don't understand or things we don't agree with anymore. And I'm not saying you need to start liking pop music or liking really overpriced craft coffee or become a tree hugger, although if you like those things, you live in the right city. But if God has truly sent us into the world for his sake, and we don't know or care anything about the people and the place that we live except for our little circles, how in the world are we going to speak to anyone besides those who are already like us? So the next time you try something new, maybe this can be something you try this week, whether going to a new place, new restaurant, listening to new music, talking to someone you ordinarily would have nothing in common with, you can consider that an act of worship. Because anything that allows us to more faithfully and effectively live out our mission, anything that helps us actually be in the world as Jesus asks us to be, so that the gospel message can be proclaimed is worship. Because being sent into the world is not just a good idea. It's our identity. Finally, what then does it mean to be not of the world as we look at the second half of this phrase? And as I jump into this section, I, I want to pause for a second. I think a lot of us, when we hear this phrase, think about abstention, staying away from things, being not involved in the things of the world. And there is a place for that. But this morning, I feel like God's challenging us to say, no, being not of the world so that people recognize who you are as my people has a lot more to do with what we do than what we don't do, what we're engaged in rather than what we avoid. And there's three specific ways I feel like this morning that God calls us to be active and do something so that people can see the difference in us because of Christ, because of our transformation. So to help frame the idea, I want to go to a popular part of Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 through 16, read this. Jesus is speaking, talking to us as followers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Are you picking up a theme this morning? Jesus here is telling us that if, if he's called us to be transformed, 
because of his gospel, because of his spirit living in us and made new in his image. But if we cover that up and try and blend into the culture around us, that as far as influence for the gospel goes, we have made ourselves useless for him. And so in John 17, there's three specific ways. Jesus prays for us that we'll be transformed so that we truly and powerfully stand out in the midst of the world around us. So the first way is in verse 13. He, he prays that we would be sanctified in joy. Now that word sanctified is kind of churchy. If you didn't go to seminary, it may be confusing. All it means is to be made holy, to be made more like God, more like Christ, which is our calling in this life. If we want to be a community that captures people's hearts in a culture that's filled right now with fear and anxiety, we need to be a community that's marked by the joy of Christ. Now, we can talk about why all day long, but the fact remains that anxiety and depression are becoming an epidemic in this country. Just a few years ago, over 250 million prescriptions were written for antidepressant drugs in a country with 350 million residents. And as someone who leads teenagers, it breaks my heart to say this, but uh, the second leading cause of death among teenagers in the state of Colorado is suicide. Joy matters because this world is starving for it. And if you want to see this church become a magnet for the hurting and the broken, let's become a community that absolutely oozes the joy of our Lord and just watch him use it. The second way that Jesus prays we'd be sanctified or transformed is in unity. Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Dr. Blomberg says again in his commentary, an important reason for desiring unity is its evangelistic impact. How impotent much subsequent Christianity has become through its rampant factionalism and or isolationism. Those are strong words. If you think about that for a second, he, he doesn't use the word unpleasant. He doesn't use the word how dysfunctional. He uses the word impotent. Because the way you and I interact as a church family and as a community is more, about, is more than just our experience of church. It's about our mission and it's about letting people see who God is by the way you and I relate and interact as a family. So I pray that as a church, we can live this value well. Unity is another one of our six core values here. And if we wanna be a community that can make a powerful witness in a culture and nation that right now especially is racked by divisiveness and hate, we need to be a community that reflects the unity of God himself. Finally, as we wrap up, Jesus prays for us that we would be sanctified in truth. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth your word is truth. And more and more in this culture, the idea of truth is thrown away by the world around us as something that's outdated and restrictive and unnecessary. And the more we live in this world, the more we're bombarded every single day with lies, whether it's from TV, from family, from music, from our employers, from politicians, sometimes even from ourselves. It is almost impossible to stay grounded in what's real, what's right, what's true and beautiful and good. And for those who've never heard the gospel, who've never heard about the redeeming love and unmerited favor and acceptance with no qualifications by God through Jesus, is it any wonder that our world is so filled with hopelessness? If we want to be an anchor 
for people who are lost and adrift in a world that says there is no right, there is no wrong, there's just opinions. We ourselves must stay rooted to our anchor, Jesus Christ, and the truth he's revealed to us in the scriptures. Some of us may struggle with being not of the world, where we may be very engaged, but we may be guilty of blending in a little bit too much. If your heart's to reach the unreached, then God bless you. He wants to honor that, I, I promise you. But if we drive, walk, talk, spend, surf the internet, and vote just like everybody else, then I'm afraid you and I may be guilty of abandoning our mission. If our faith isn't something we wear on our sleeve, is it not something that emanates from the very core of who we are, that's not just a personal issue. That's a mission issue. Because reaching people for Jesus is not just a good idea. It's our identity. And your faith affects so many more people than just you and me. And finally, as I close, I'd like to bring up something I felt like God really laid on my heart this week. As we look at, at what it means to live on mission, and to live out this really high calling that God gives us, there's a lot of roadblocks to that. And I feel like one in particular that God laid on my heart this week, whether it's for me or for many of you in this room, I don't know, but I feel like that roadblock is fear. Whether, whether we struggle with being in the world, I feel like maybe some of us are afraid of being uncomfortable, being an outsider, being in a place that it's strange, being around people we don't understand anymore, feeling outdated, whatever it is for you, I feel like a lot of us in this room may today be struggling with the fear of being engaged in a world that seems more and more foreign to us. And for those of us who struggle with being not of the world, I feel like we may struggle with fear of being rejected and being singled out and looking weird and being a standout and a sore thumb. And we know that pain, right, when we're around people who don't go to church, who don't know the Lord, and we make a reference to our faith and suddenly it gets really, really quiet are really, really awkward, right? Feeling rejected, seeing how the world looks at Christians and sometimes not wanting to stand up and say, hey, I'm one of those, right? We know that pain, and a lot of us don't want to go back to that. And this morning, no matter where you come from, I feel like this, this morning God is saying to us, trust me, do not be afraid. Yes, I have sent you on a mission that's costly, that's dangerous, that's uncomfortable, that's discouraging, tiring. Yes, at times it feels impossible, but I am with you and I went first for you. You see, when we look at what it means to be a community that's sent, not just as a good idea, but as a part of our identity, a lot of us tend to feel some guilt or some shame about that or some pressure, and that may be the Lord speaking to you or it may not be. I don't know, but what I do know is that God is not asking us to do anything that he didn't already do first. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to redeem the world back to himself. And he's been looking for partners ever since then. And the, this prayer here in John that we look at today that we've been talking about, this prayer comes right before our Lord was taken and arrested and beaten and crucified and falsely accused and killed so that we could finally come home to our Father who loves us. And because of that sacrifice, because of our God, who himself was sent on our behalf to take our place, to pay our price that we should have paid, we're invited to follow him into a world that, yes, they may hate us, but this world that desperately needs Jesus, the hope of the world.
Being sent to reach the world for Jesus is not just a good idea. It's our identity because we follow a God who went first and he invites us to follow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for going before us and taking our punishment, Lord, that we deserve. Granting us eternal life, Lord, that we may know you. And God, as we are humbled by this word and this challenge to step up, Lord, and to be a part of this mission that you started and you invited us to follow, God, I just pray, would you inspire this church to walk in that calling with boldness, with courage, Lord, and that fear would not hold any of us back to live the lives that you made for us. God, I thank you for giving us something to live for that's so much bigger than just our lives, just our personal faith, God, but that you invite us into a grand story about sharing your message so that people can have eternal life. What a privilege and what a blessing, God. We love you. We thank you for all of this, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.